Hello and welcome to another edition of Branching Out with the Acorn. My name's Becca Whitnell. I'm the editor for the Thousand Oaks Acorn and I'm here with McKenna Huey. Hi. Hi, McKenna, reporter for Camarillo. Today we're going to talk a little bit about some successes the Ventura County Sheriff's had recently um, solving, well, they believe solving some cold cases. We've got um, most recently the murder of Monica Leach. The uh, the sheriff's department arrested Kevin Ray James of San Bernardino, and then last month you did a lot of reporting, McKenna. Yes, in February, the sheriff's office arrested Tony Garcia of Oxnard for on suspicion of the murders of um, Rachel Zendejas and. Lisa Gondek. And both of those, both of the cases, um, the sheriffs are using some newish technologies, some new methods. Yes. The method used to allegedly solve these cases is called genetic genealogy. Um, and that's when um, DNA samples from a crime scene are compared to DNA samples uploaded to a genealogical research database. Um, and it's the same technology that was used to identify Joseph James D'Angelo as the Golden State Killer in 2018. Which the Ventura County Sheriff's um, Office was involved with, from mm-hmm. what I understand. Um, it was there along with some other law enforcement agencies uh, initiative to use that. And yeah. that's, I think, where many of us first heard about this. Mm-hmm. With the Monica Leach case, it was a little, um, it was interesting to me because they didn't have, you know, hair samples or body fluid or anything like that. They had what was described to me as, as touch DNA because the um, the suspects had had touched some handcuffs. I should probably go back and kind of explain what what happened back in 1997. Monica Leach, who was 39 years old at the time, was working at Western Financial Bank in Thousand Oaks. And she'd been working there for about two months. And uh, two men, when two men came in, just any regular morning, it was 10, 15 in the morning, April 28th, 1997. And they were dressed as construction workers. And from what I understand, they handcuffed all but two bank employees, and then had the the two that were not handcuffed take them in the back, get money, and one of those people was Monica Leach. By all accounts, she followed everything they asked her to do. They had her kneel, and then for for no apparent reason, shot her execution style. She... Um, ironically, I guess, when, when I spoke to... It, this w- had turned into a cold case until two years ago, and they reopened it. And at that time, I spoke to her husband, who said that she had been working um, at Bank of America. Uh, I'm sorry, Bank of Alevian Oxnard. For people who've been around a while, that that will bring back some memories. My parents actually banked there when I was growing up. <laughs> um, and her manager had trans had moved jobs to. Spank in Thousand Oaks, and she decided to follow along. Um, one of the reasons was that her family decided that that probably would be safer. Thousand Oaks is, as you know, billed as one of the safest cities 
in the state, if not the country. And so she moved over and two months later, this happened and it went that from what law enforcement officials told me again, um, two years ago, they came very close to solving this. They found the car, the getaway car was a 1994 Ford Explorer that, um, these guys had tried to disguise. They painted it, apparently. And they knew they could trace this back to the neighborhood these guys, um, the two people, came from. They were pretty sure they were a member of the, they were members of the Crips. They had all this information, but as at the time, uh, Sheriff Spokesman Eric Bouchot told me he's like it's like having a thousand piece puzzle and you, you're missing that one piece to be able to make the arrest mm-hmm. um but technology and such has advanced like you said and they were finally able to they believe solve this and make him an arrest on the suspicion of murder and we'll see what happens he james um was in has had, was in court for a preliminary hearing, but it was continued. So he's not even made a plea yet, uh, but he'll be back in court, court early next month. So that's kind of um, Monica's story. She, by the way, was married and had two kids, nine and 11 at the time, and then two stepchildren, both Monica and Floyd, her husband brought brought kids into the, into the family. So, um, uh, he, Floyd told me that uh, it wasn't until a few years before they reopened it um, that her kids were okay with kind of reopening it. They didn't want to op- open old wounds, uh, but they talked with she, he talked with them, and they they agreed it's been enough time. So, so they moved forward. But um, yeah, so that's kind of Monica's story. Can you tell us a little bit about about the other case? Mm-hmm. Um, so on January 18th, 1981, um, two newspaper delivery boys discovered the body of 20-year-old Rachel Rodriguez in Dejas in a carport near um, her apartment on Mobile Avenue in Camarillo. And police said Rachel had been raped and strangled to death. And then later that year, on December 12th, 1981, um, firefighters responding to an an apartment fire on West Gonzalez Road in Oxnard found the body of 21-year-old Lisa Gondek, and police said she had also been strangled to death. Um, And media outlets at the time reported that both women had visited Huntington's nightclub in Oxnard um, the night of their deaths. Which is is now long closed. Yes. That was in the wagon wheel area? Yes. And um, it wasn't until 2004 that the investigators from Oxnard Police Department and Ventura County Sheriff's Office realized that the DNA found on both of the women's bodies linked back to the same suspect and so that they were likely killed by the same person. Um, and they had the killer's DNA, but because he wasn't in um, a national database of convicted offenders, they couldn't match it to anyone until this year. And that's where the genealogical part of that comes in. Yes. So February 7th um, this year, um, the sheriff's office arrested 68-year-old Oxnard resident Tony Garcia, whose DNA matched the DNA found on both Rachel and Lisa's bodies. 
Um, and the sheriff's office and the Oxford Police Department aren't sharing a lot of information about, um, you know, what led that other than this um, advancement in technology, how the victims are connected. Um, but they do believe that there might be other victims um, related to Tony Garcia. You had a chance to talk with uh, Rachel's brother. What, what did he have to say about Rachel? How, how do people describe her? What was she like? What can you tell us? Yes, one of the investigators helped me connect to one of Rachel's older brothers, um, Roy Rodriguez. And he still lives in Camarillo after all these years. And he was kind enough to trust me with Rachel's story, which I really appreciate. And um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Rachel now, if that's okay. So Rachel was born November 20th, 1960 in Modesto, California. And she would be 62 years old today. Growing up, she... Um, Roy told me that she was shy, silly, and smart. She loved playing chess and correcting people's grammar. Um, <laughs> That's right. I remember you telling me that. And wrestling with her brothers. And most of all, she was always very kind and caring to everyone. Um, her family moved to Camarillo in 1974, and she attended Adolfo Camarillo High School. And when Rachel was 16, um, she got married, but she and her husband eventually separated in 1980, and she became a single mom of her two young children. And just two months before um, she was killed, Rachel and her brother Roy moved into an apartment on Mobile Avenue in Camarillo. And Roy said that it was a new beginning for her after her separation. She was so, so happy. Um, and she was taking classes at Oxnard College to kind of get a more high-paying job so that she could support and create a better life for her two children. And everyone I spoke to said that Rachel was the most amazing mom um, but unfortunately, her daughters were only one and two when she died, so they don't remember her other than what her relatives have told her. Um, and the brother, Roy, said that he felt so guilty for not being able to protect her on that night um, that he was determined to advocate for her and see her see her killer brought to justice. So every year on the anniversary of her death, he would call um, the sheriff's office or show up in, the, in person if they didn't answer his phone calls. Um, and he actually encouraged them to use genetic genealogy after he hold after he heard about the arrest of the Golden State Killer. Oh, wow, I, how heartbreaking that he feels guilty. I guess that's probably natural. And he he was yeah. home at the time. Yes, he was home. I guess he said that he left um, the club that they went together um, early, and she stayed out. And she eventually took her kids' babysitters home. And so, um, allegedly, when she was coming home from dropping her babysitters off, that's when she was attacked. And it was really heartbreaking to speak to Roy. Um, I'm so grateful that he opened up to me, but um, that interview was was really hard, especially like when I was transcribing it. It was really hard, and I felt a lot of pressure to make that story perfect for him, and I think he really liked it. He picked up um, eight copies, actually, so that made <laughs> well, me feel good. But he's that, very grateful that um, someone is being brought to justice. That's that's heartwarming. It's, I think it's one of the hardest things we do as reporters is it, it feels so much like, you know, ambulance chasing mm -hmm. or, you know, hawkish to talk to these families about the deaths of loved ones. And I can understand that. I, I understand why people think that. Right. But I think just about every reporter I know, it, it's not in in these kinds of cases about getting the story first. It's wanting to share a story. Someone someone's lost their lives and wanting to to tell their story because 
what we get from the police departments is name and age and, and city of residence. And that's pretty much it right? A- about the person. And everyone has a story. And I think just, I don't know if it's a service or not, but I feel like what, what I can do, what you can do is help share that story and, you know, is our way of paying tribute or Yes, well said. Um, I agree. I think that, you know, we have to share some of the details about the suspect, some of the information about what happened the night they died. But I always say to family members that if you want to come forward and talk about what Rachel was like in life rather than death, and this is a great opportunity to do that. So she's remembered in a more positive way. So the community remembers those little things about how she liked to correct people's grammar and not just, you know, what happened to her that night. Um, and I think it's really important. So I'm grateful um, that Roy wanted to do that with me. Um, Lisa's mom is not comfortable speaking to the media right now just for a story about who Lisa was in her life. Um, so we're respecting that. If she wants to, she knows that she has that opportunity. Sure. So, and that's understandable. I yeah. mean, this is all I can imagine all gets dredged up in your mind, in your heart. Yes, that's what Roy said. He said that he wasn't—he didn't know what it would feel like to see someone arrested, but he said that it, it's been really hard for him. Um, he was in the process of healing, and that's kind of all ripped apart now, um, especially court dates are really hard for him. Um, but what we do know about Lisa is that she grew up in Connecticut, and she moved to Oxnard in 1981. Um, she moved there after visiting a friend who was in the Navy, I believe, um, and she liked it so much that she just stayed. So she was in the process of starting a new job in retail at a local mall in Oxnard, and she was making new friends. Um, so that's what we know about her right now. Maybe we'll know more about her in the future. Yeah, I'm hoping the same about Monica, although when I spoke to, and and I didn't do the reporting on the most recent arrest, um, that was Vicki Talbot, and um, hopefully we'll be able to do a little more on Monica. What I do know about her, she grew up, she was native to Somis, so she was a local person, grew up, went to Mesa Union School, graduated from Rio Mesa she um, had 20 years experience in her field. And likewise, everyone that we spoke to said, you know, she was just a loving mom, a, a friendly, helpful person. I, you know, you just kind of wonder how these things happen to such good people. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. It'll be um, interesting to see this play out in court. I'm assuming you'll be covering covering that and watching um, as this goes forward, not just to see if justice is going to be served, but also how they went about it, because I'm sure they'll go into detail about um, how gene- genetics played a role. Um, yes. Yeah, so Tony Garcia has pleaded not guilty to the murders and all of, um, and he's denied all the special allegations, such as the kidnapping and rape of Rachel. Um, and and the kidnap part was just because they found her body. We're not really, we're not really sure that's still unclear. I'm sure that will be made more clear okay. um, with the, the prosecutor's argument. Um, but Tony Garcia's defense attorney has said that um, he has no serious criminal history and he's maintaining his innocence. Um, he said that his wife and his son are supporting him still. Um, and Tony Garcia is being held at the main jail with no bail. And 
Um, the last time I spoke with the prosecutor, I'm not sure if this is still up to date, but the last time I spoke with him, he said that he wasn't sure yet whether um, they would seek the death penalty for this case, but I'm sure when they when they decide that we'll make an announcement on that. And then um, the date for the preliminary hearing will be likely set um, later today, actually. Um, so during the preliminary hearing, the judge will determine whether there's enough evidence for a trial. Um, and so hopefully we'll we'll learn more about what happened then. Yeah, for those um, listening, preliminary hearings really are the first opportunity to kind of see what the prosecution has. They're not going to show all their cards, but they'll show enough to convince the judge, like this is the evidence we have to convince a judge that, okay, that it's it's reasonable to go forward with a hear- with a trial. Mm-hmm. That's, um, you were talking about about Garcia's family, even people he knew. I know that you made a phone call to um, to to some people who were pretty close with him, and and they were pretty shocked too. I just remember that phone call being in the office when you made it. Yes. So as soon as I found out the name of the person who was arrested, I did a Facebook social media search, um, and he had a logo of um, an Oxnard karate business on his profile picture. So I called that business and spoke um, to the owner, and she's known Tony um, for decades and decades. And she said that um, she was shocked. He was arrested, I guess, outside of the karate shop in the morning before he showed up to class He'd, um, and she thought it might be a traffic violation or something. You said. Yes, she said that knowing him, she suspected it would be like something minor, such as a traffic violation. Um, she would never think that he would do anything wrong. Um, and I guess he volunteered there to teach karate to people for many years. Um, so it seems like the community, the people that knew him, are very shocked. And he doesn't have a record that we know of. There's a lot of Tony Garcia's. So unfortunately, when I search his name on the court website, um, it's hard to tell who's who, but his defense attorney said he has no serious criminal history. Um, but the sheriff's office and the prosecutors don't share that information with us, just in case it could taint a jury pool, they said. Got it. And and that may or may not come out in court. I guess we'll wait and see. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of touched on something. I think people might find interesting. Maybe not. Maybe it's just because I find it interesting. You you were talking about how you jumped online and, and started looking up things about um, Garcia. And it's it's something we kind of do. It's when there's a person of interest, whether it's the victim or, or in this case, the person arrested, we kind of try and find it goes back to telling the story and we find out, try and find out what we can. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk about that at all or, or what else you're doing behind the scenes? Obviously, you'll be covering the court case, but but what else do you do? Um, yeah, so this will be, if it goes to trial, will be my first trial to cover, um, which is going to be interesting. A lot of learning, I'm sure. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't realize that, McKenna. I think so, Because you, yeah. you have been in court for the David Hetzlein yeah, thing, so, but that really hasn't gone to trial. Right. Um, and so, like you said, we're in that, like, breaking news adrenaline situation. We're just trying to figure out as much information as possible about anything, really. Um, actually, before that day when we got a tip that there was an arrest... Um, I never heard of this of this cold case before. Um, so 
I felt like very behind. Like I was trying to do all the background research. Um, we didn't have too much reporting on it on our website, actually, since it was so long ago. And there hadn't really been much progress in the cold case. Um, but the Moore Park reporter, Zia, was kind enough to go with me to the Camarillo Public Library. And there they have an archive of all of the old newspapers um, on microfilm. And so they had these machines that they said were from like the 70s or 80s. Can and I just jump in? Yes. Do you mind if I... So I remember talking to you and Zia about this when I, when I was at the Camarillo office and had to explain what microphone was, and I've never felt older. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, no, it's okay. I just well, I the, thought it was funny. The machines were so old that when we turned, <laughs> You're the, not helping. the librarian <laughs> turned it on for us, and it literally broke. We broke it. We felt so bad. Like oh, as no. soon as she turned it on, one of them broke. So we only had one machine. We couldn't both do um, research, which was the idea. But um, Zia was helping me and we were scrolling through all these pages. It made me very motion sick because it's like hundreds of newspaper pages. We were looking through front pages and we did find a lot of articles from 1981 from Camarillo Daily News um, about the cold case, um, especially Rachel since she was in Camarillo. And um, we were looking actually for a police, any police sketches that this um, sheriff's office had released of a suspect. Um, other media outlets have reported that there was a police sketch of someone that allegedly looks like Tony Garcia, who was allegedly seen dancing with Rachel the night she died. I have no idea. I can't find that anywhere. Um, I've reached out to detectives and asked if they could share any information about a police sketch that has been publicized in previous years, and they haven't returned my emails. So um, we just think that would be interesting to find if there if there were police sketches or descriptions of the suspect or if it was someone that was seen dancing with Rachel or Lisa and later followed her home, but we're not sure. That's interesting. The, um, the police sketch of Kevin James in the Monica Leach case is so dead on, yes. in my opinion. I mean, it looks so close to his actual photograph. Mm -hmm. I was I was shocked when I saw saw the photo of him. So it'd be interesting to see if you can find that. Yeah. So from here, where do you go? As far as I guess, just you know, hoping hoping justice comes out, the families get justice. Mm -hmm. Whoever it is, you know, we we don't know. We know all these people are innocent until they're proven guilty. Right. Um. So, you know, we hope the right person is found and and serve justice. Yes. And on that note, the sheriff's office is asking anyone with information about Tony Garcia, any potential um, victims um, to come forward and email coldcase at ventura.org or call 805-383-8704. And on that note, it hasn't been a real happy discussion. Somehow I end up doing a lot of podcasts. <laughs> They're not happy discussions, mm -hmm. but in this case, you know, maybe we will see justice um, and it'll be a really interesting, if nothing else, to learn a lot more about this technology that seems to, it seems like it's being used a lot more frequently mm -hmm. and hopefully will help solve a lot of, a lot of cases and bring closure to hurting families. Yes, they deserve that. They do. Thanks for thanks for for talking about it with me. Thank you.